Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Sonic the Hedgehog, a two-dimensional platform title developed by Sonic Team and published by Sega for the Sega Genesis and Sega Mega Drive systems back in 1991. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 48. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we also have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. Discord is probably the best way to engage with me, as well as the rest of the podcast community. And we do all sorts of fun stuff out on Discord. This past weekend, we just had our first ever weekend gaming challenge, where in honor of the fact that this is the Sonic the Hedgehog episode, the challenge was... Try to beat Sonic the Hedgehog before Sunday night. And there, I don't know how many people actually tried to do it. I know I played around with it a little bit. I know a few different people tried it. But there was only one person that was able to complete the challenge in time. That was Bookie New. Bookie New, congratulations on winning the very first weekend challenge. You are now on the leaderboard. What is the leaderboard for? Well, nobody quite knows yet, but it is something out there. It's going to be a little mysterious for a little bit. If you want to get involved with that, then join us out on Discord. It's really that simple. We have a ton of fun out there. I also want to mention that we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. You can get a couple of extra Patreon exclusive podcast episodes every single month by signing up over there. You can get access to exclusive blog posts, special roles and channels out on Discord. It's a fun time. I do highly encourage if you're interested to go over there and sign up. I also want to shout out to our Pantheon members. These are the members of our Patreon community that are contributing at the Pantheon of classic gaming level. They are Rich Senewald, Iso, and David Morton. Thank you guys for your contributions. Thank you all for your contributions and everybody for listening. I've been having a blast. I hope all of you are as well. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does it sit in the overall spectrum of video and computer gaming? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star counts or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. It hasn't aged a day. You should definitely go out and play it. You are guaranteed to have a good time. It is just an, a quintessential experience. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These were still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre in which it lives. You absolutely should play those games. Highly recommended. Not quite Pantheon level, though. Just not quite at that premium spot, but they are still really worthwhile experiences, and I still highly recommend you play them today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broader population. They may have aged a little bit, may have had a couple of issues to begin with. You could still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. You could still have some fun. But for the most part, for the majority of the population, I cannot recommend these titles. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or 
they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog is a two-dimensional platform title developed by Sonic Team and published by Sega for the Sega Genesis and Sega Mega Drive systems back in 1991. To really understand the story behind Sonic the Hedgehog, we need to go back in time to look at the evolution of the home console market in general, because Sonic didn't just spring into existence randomly. He was the end result of a series of constant and persistent console battles between a variety of industry heavyweights, and for one of those companies, hopes were high that Sonic would provide the knockout punch they would need to win the war. But before we get to that, let's talk about home video game consoles in general, and a bit about how the console market evolved over time. When many people think about home consoles— One of the first products that usually springs to mind is the Atari VCS, or Atari 2600 system. They're interchangeable, the names. But that was not, in fact, the first in-the-home video game system. That distinction belongs to the Magnavox Odyssey, which was released in 1972. Now, when we talk about this time frame, it's important to remember that the video game industry overall was still in its very early stages. And for the most part, if someone wanted to play a video game they were going to have to do that in an arcade because the technology for playing video games in the home just didn't exist yet. The Odyssey changed all of that, though it didn't exactly set the world on fire. In fact, it was only a modest success, with only around 350,000 total console sales over its three-ish year lifespan. But as the first video game console available for home use, it helped to demonstrate what was possible, and it didn't take long for other companies to follow suit in releasing their own home consoles. The next major home console release happened in 1977, which is when the Atari Video Computer System, or VCS, became available to purchase. This, by the way, is the console that would eventually be known as the Atari 2600 and would almost single-handedly popularize the concept of gaming in the home, or at least it would popularize the concept of cartridge-based consoles in the home, because in the years between the Magnavox Odyssey's release and when the VCS came to market, there were a significant number of home video game releases. The thing with those releases, though, was that they were almost all single-purpose kinds of systems. Take, for example, Pong which was an incredibly popular arcade game that would eventually make its way into our home version in 1974. When you bought a Pong console, you were pretty much just getting Pong. It wasn't like Pong was on a cartridge that you could swap out for another game. The physical machine you purchased had Pong hard-coded in its memory, and when you plugged Pong into your television, Pong was pretty much all you were going to get. There were a number of single-purpose video game systems released in the early to mid-1970s, and many proved to be pretty popular. But the market was reaching a saturation point, and consumers were quickly realizing that these types of game systems just didn't provide enough variety to hold their attention. So, when the Atari VCS came onto the scene, with the ability to swap cartridges and games at a whim people leapt at the chance to diversify their in-home gaming experience, and it didn't take long before Atari was the standard in home video gaming. Many of those home video game experiences ended up being ports of popular arcade titles like Pong and Space Invaders, and Atari in particular became very popular due to many of those ports, some of which Atari itself had originally developed as arcade cabinets. That's not to say that Atari was the only console in town, though, and Atari's early success would result in a number of entrants into the home console market, such as the latest iteration of the Magnavox Odyssey, the Vectrex, the Intellivision, and the ColecoVision. 
The launch of the Atari VCS was really what kicked off the first console war, where many different companies were competing for a slice of the same pie. And while Atari was certainly the leader, it was not entirely invincible, as all it took was one savvy exclusivity deal for a killer game to sway the market in a different direction. ColecoVision was actually the first console to begin to pull control away from Atari a bit, as they were able to obtain an exclusive license for the home version of Nintendo's Donkey Kong arcade game, which helped the company eventually claim 17% of the home video game market by 1982. That being said, Atari still held a position of dominance, with 58% of all console sales attributable to the Atari VCS. But their position was slowly eroding. So Atari knew that they needed to do something to maintain control and avoid any continued loss of market share, so they began to seek out opportunities to increase their total game library, both by pursuing high-priced licensing deals with popular media and gaming properties, as well as loosening any sort of restrictions on who could publish a game for the system. Now, in reality, that loosening really started happening in 1979, which is when the first third-party publishing company, Activision, formed. Prior to that, any games for a home console were published directly by that console's owning company. Meaning, if you were playing an Atari VCS title before 1979, it was a title published by Atari, and as a result, there was a certain level of quality you could expect from the title. After third-party publishing became a thing, you had any number of companies that could potentially develop a game for the console, and Atari didn't have any mechanism in place to restrict those companies. From Atari's perspective, the more games, the better. And even if a large portion of them turned out to be mediocre or downright poor games, they helped sell an extra console or two. And if that happened, then Atari was happy. By the time late 1982 rolled around, a number of events had occurred that would serve to put the home console market into what can only be described as a death spiral. The number of video game releases had ballooned to ridiculous proportions, and with Atari's lack of quality control or publishing restrictions, the number of quality releases were diluted to the point that the video game buying public just simply began to turn their attention to other hobbies. There were no guarantees that when you bought a game, you'd be getting something worthwhile. And even first-party published titles like E.T. and Pac-Man were so poorly designed that they undersold expectations dramatically, resulting in a significant loss in revenue. Unfortunately for the entire video game industry, that revenue loss wasn't simply a one-time thing. It continued to increase exponentially, as the market had become saturated with low-quality titles that the gaming public simply didn't want to purchase, and as a result, the entire home console market crashed in 1983. And when I say crashed, I'm not just talking about a cars hitting each other on the highway kind of thing. I'm talking a full-scale, apocalypse-level, 10-mile-wide asteroid crashing into the Earth kind of impact. To put it into perspective... In 1983, the home video game market had total sales of around $3.2 billion. By 1985, that number had dwindled to $100 million in sales. That's a 97% drop in just two years. Absolutely crazy. Many financial analysts believed that the home video game market was simply going to disappear entirely, that it was a nice fad while it lasted, but that it was no longer a commercially viable venture. Sure, video games in general were still around, with arcades remaining relevant, albeit still less so than what they had been a couple years earlier. And, as far as in-home video gaming was concerned, computers were rising up in prominence, as were the games for those platforms. Regardless, though, while the video game industry wasn't exactly dead, it was certainly on life support, and any sort of resuscitation would be dependent on the introduction of something truly game-changing. And this is where Nintendo comes into the picture. Nintendo, as longtime listeners are aware, actually got its start as a playing card company back in 1889, with a transition to toys and electronics occurring in the early 1970s, almost 100 years after the company was founded. Since that pivot in the early 70s, Nintendo was rapidly becoming a significant force in the video game industry as it entered a variety of markets, including arcades, portable systems like the Game & Watch, and even home consoles through the release of its color TV game system, which was one of those consoles with games built in. It wasn't a cartridge-based system like the Atari. 
while Nintendo was enjoying a moderate level of success. Another significant force in the gaming industry was beginning to evolve its own portfolio of products. That company was Sega, who had historically been an arcade game manufacturer and was in fact one of the top five arcade manufacturers of the early 1980s. When the video game crash of 1983 occurred, however, Sega noticed that its arcade business wasn't quite performing as well as it previously had, so they decided to expand their reach into the home console market, which resulted in the release of the Sega SG-1000 system in Japan on July 15, 1983. At the same time, Nintendo had been inspired by the ColecoVision, and they also decided to expand into the home console market, this time focusing on the creation of a console that would use swappable cartridges to play games, as opposed to having only a small set of games preloaded in memory. That system, the Family Computer, or Famicom, also released on July 15, 1983. So, we had brand new console releases from both Sega and Nintendo, both on the same exact day. While I don't know that the release date was chosen simply to compete with one another, it is interesting that the Sega vs. Nintendo rivalry would begin with the seemingly unrelated releases of each company's first cartridge-based home consoles. Regardless of whether that direct competition was intended or not, the fact is, competition is exactly what happened, and here it wasn't particularly close, as Nintendo quickly became a dominant force in the market as it attempted to right the wrongs of prior console manufacturers. Rather than allow anyone to release whatever titles they wanted for the system, Nintendo would restrict publishers to a limited number of game releases each year. Though, just for everybody's awareness, companies would often get around that restriction by creating a bunch of shell subsidiaries. At the same time, Nintendo implemented the Nintendo Seal of Quality program, which was intended to prevent any unauthorized titles from being published on the console. The thought there was, only games approved by Nintendo would make its way to the system, and the Seal of Quality was a way of restoring consumer faith in the video game industry after many gamers had been burned by the glut of shovelware that was present on earlier consoles like the Atari 2600. In reality, that Seal of Quality didn't really mean you were definitely going to get a good game, but it did give the perception that if you were buying a Nintendo title, you were buying something that was a quality product. The Nintendo Famicom would rapidly capture market share in Japan, and eventually Nintendo would expand overseas with the release of the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, in 1985. At the same time, Sega released their next console, the Master System, as a way of competing with the North American NES release. Only, unfortunately for Sega, Nintendo around this time was a massive juggernaut who literally could not be stopped. Bolstered by a continuous stream of releases that would in later years be deemed all-time classics, Nintendo ran wild across the entire video game industry, capturing over 80% of the market by 1988. There's a reason why for an entire generation of families and parents, playing video games was synonymous with playing Nintendo. The company had established a foothold in the industry, and in just five years after the release of their Famicom system, was the most dominant video game console manufacturer on the planet. For its part, Sega never shied away from competition, and even after getting a fairly significant drubbing by Nintendo with their 8-bit systems, Sega was prepping for a fight as they began developing their next-generation console, the Sega Mega Drive, shortly after the Master System had been released. The Mega Drive, or Genesis as it was known in North America, would be the first true 16-bit console released to the market, and was vastly more powerful than both Nintendo's 8-bit platform as well as the newly released PC Engine, which was NEC's entry into the home video game console race. The thought in Sega at the time was that if they were going to compete with the rest of the market, they needed to deliver closer to an arcade experience at home, and they needed more power, which is what drove the shift to develop a 16-bit console as opposed to iterating on their previous 8-bit design. As you might imagine, regardless of the technical prowess of Sega's new 16-bit system, Sega was still facing an uphill battle. Not only was the console market becoming even more diverse, with NEC entering the market, Atari still releasing consoles, and Nintendo continuing their 8-bit dominance, but Nintendo was also hard at work on both a portable cartridge-based system, which would eventually become the Nintendo Game Boy, as well as their own 16-bit console, the forthcoming Super Famicom in Japan and Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES, in North America. To say that the competition was heating up would be an understatement. Yet even with all of this competition, 
Nintendo continued to maintain a stranglehold on the video game market. Especially in North America, Nintendo was an absolute monster, and by 1991, Nintendo had captured over 90% of the overall video game market, compared to Sega sitting at 6% total market penetration. If Sega was going to compete with Nintendo, they knew they needed to alter their strategy. Up to this point, Sega had focused their advertising on the 16-bit technical capabilities of their Genesis console, along with the fact that the Genesis was the only system where famous Sega arcade titles like Altered Beast could be played from the comfort of home. Still, that wasn't quite enough to put a dent in Nintendo's armor. Sure, Sega had some arcade hits, but Nintendo had a stable of franchise characters and also had the publishing rights to many of the more popular arcade titles of the time, aside from those that were published by Sega. Beyond that, with the Super Nintendo, Nintendo was about to release a console technologically comparable to the Genesis, and that system would provide faithful Nintendo fans with a natural upgrade path to 16-bit gaming. Shortly before the release of the Super Nintendo Entertainment System in North America, Sega of America went through a bit of a shakeup, as its CEO of the time, Michael Katz, was replaced by a man named Tom Kalinske, who was a veteran of the toy market and he had previously worked at Mattel. When Kalinske accepted his role as CEO, he was given one primary directive by Sega of Japan. He was to figure out a way to beat Nintendo, with Kalinske being given oversight of the American and European geographic regions. In short, outside of Japan, Kalinske was pretty much in charge. With that direction in place, Kalinske put together a multi-part strategy to attempt to steal the market from Nintendo, including doubling down on aggressive marketing that oftentimes focused on Nintendo's family-friendly image while positioning Sega as the cool kids console. If you wanted games for your kindergartner, go with Nintendo and have some fun with Mario and Donkey Kong. If you wanted to experience the latest in home console entertainment with more mature themes, action, and fast-paced gameplay, the Sega Genesis was the place to be. And by the way, let me tell you, that advertising was successful. I believe I've mentioned this before, but I was primarily a Nintendo kid up through the early 90s, which is when I started exploring other consoles as well as getting more heavily involved in computer gaming. Sega's marketing campaign made schoolyards of the time a pretty interesting place to be, as there were times that an actual divide amongst friend groups would occur, driven primarily by whether you played Nintendo and were therefore a child, versus if you owned a Genesis and were therefore more of a man. The fact is, neither of those were true, but Sega definitely presented itself as the console for people who were ready to grow up and throw off the shackles of Nintendo's family-safe platform, and for the most part... It worked. Beyond advertising, Kalinske had a few other ideas on how to make Sega more competitive. He would cut the price of the console, making it more affordable than ever to purchase a Sega system, while also making it difficult for Nintendo to compete price-wise since their 16-bit system hadn't even released yet. Kalinske would also drive Sega of America to begin working on titles more directly aimed at American audiences, the thought there being that creating titles with the American market in mind would lead to higher sales. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, Sega's American and Japanese divisions both agreed. Sega would need a flagship title complete with new mascot designed almost exclusively to compete with Nintendo's juggernaut Mario. We've talked a bit about mascots with video game consoles before, and the fact is, they can definitely be a big deal for console makers, and oftentimes a quality mascot can sell systems just by their presence on the console. Think about Mario. There's a reason why almost every Nintendo console launch, at least prior to more modern consoles, included a Mario title. He is a system seller, and when you got a Mario game, you were almost guaranteed to be getting a quality experience. You also had characters like Bonk on the PC Engine and TurboGrafx-16. Now, I would argue that Bonk was never fully embraced as NEC's console mascot, but he certainly was positioned like that, and he did end up selling a ton of consoles back when the first Bonk's adventure was released. For Sega, you had Alex Kidd, who despite starring in a number of titles across the Sega Master System, never really achieved the same level of success as Nintendo's mustachioed plumber. That's not to say that Alex Kidd games weren't good, he just didn't have as much cultural reach as Mario. If you held up a picture of Mario in the early 90s and asked random people on the street who he was, people could identify him. Do the same with Alex Kidd? 
I'm guessing that wouldn't have been as successful. And with a company focusing on increasing their market share, that kind of lack of recognition could be a major deficit. So, Sega made the decision that they needed to create a new mascot, one that would be able to propel the company further into popular culture, especially in North America, with Sega president Hayao Nakayama declaring that the company would hold an internal contest to design Sega's new character. As you might imagine, this contest would result in a number of different teams working on potential designs. I mean, here was an opportunity to potentially get your design featured as the face of Sega for the foreseeable future. Think about when Shigeru Miyamoto got his big break in a similar situation, where Nintendo was looking for ideas to convert their overproduced radar scope arcade cabinets into something that would actually make money. Miyamoto's solution was Donkey Kong, and that success would propel him into a career where he'd become a true legend in the industry. Sega was effectively creating the same kind of opportunity. One of the teams working on Sega's contest was the programmer-artist duo of Yuji Naka and Naoto Oshima, both of whom had worked at Sega since the mid-80s. As Yuji Naka was working on some concepts for Sega's competition, he came upon an idea for a title that he thought would be a perfect fit for Sega as a company. As a fan of Nintendo's Mario titles, Naka knew that he wanted to work on a platforming title, but he always felt like Mario's speed was just a bit too slow. He wanted something faster-paced with more action, and also wanted levels that didn't just consist of side-to-side gameplay. For Sega to succeed, they couldn't just mimic Nintendo, they needed to leapfrog them. So, Naka began working on a prototype for a game, and just for everyone's awareness, when I say prototype, I mean it in its truest sense. The early demos of the game didn't even have a character. The player was represented as a simple sprite in the shape of a ball, with Naka designing an experience that involved that ball rolling rapidly through a level, both side to side, as well as vertically and, perhaps most impressively, around various curves and loops. Now, you might not think that making a sprite curve around a loop would be a big deal, but back in the early 90s, that concept was pretty darn difficult to develop. In most platforming titles, the act of collision detection, or more simply, determining when the player comes into contact with an object in the game world, is pretty simple. You need a solid ground, obviously, and you need walls, bricks, and enemies. But for the most part, platforming titles around this time used simple geometric shapes with predominantly straight lines, which meant collision detection and making your character appear to exist within a game world wasn't too difficult. Consider Mario. In most of his games up to this point, he walked in a relatively straight line from left to right, and sometimes up into the sky, with the most complex geometry in a Mario game being a sloped floor. Naka's prototype was intended to showcase brand new technology, with curves, loops, and tubes providing a more diverse kind of experience beyond the traditional flat platforming games of the time. Beyond that diversity, Naka's demo was fast. When figuring out what speed to make his demo, He looked at Mario's running speed and decided to use that as the default base speed for his new prototype. Meaning, when Naka's demo ball would actually accelerate, it would do so at speeds previously unseen in home console gaming. So, Naka had a concept for a game, but a game concept does not translate directly into a company mascot. The actual design of the character for the prototype that Naka had created would fall to artist Naoto Oshima. Oshima saw Naka's demo and the speed with which the game played, and he therefore began exploring characters based on animals that traditionally were associated with speed, going through a few different design revisions, including characters based on kangaroos and rabbits. Eventually, Oshima developed an idea for a character based on a rabbit, which seemed like something that might lend itself to a game. Rabbits are fast, so they'd be a natural fit for Naka's gameplay demo. And, more popularly, rabbits have long ears, which Oshima conceptualized as potentially being usable as a means to grab and catch items in the game world. He brought that concept to Naka, who began implementing the character into his game engine, and they discovered that the rabbit ear gameplay idea was just a bit too complex for the Sega Genesis hardware to process. So, Oshima went back to the drawing board, and, thinking of Naka's demo more closely, where a ball literally moves around a level at breakneck speed, he considered... What if he focused his attention on animals that could, in fact, roll up into a ball? He once again went through several different possibilities, until eventually settling on the hedgehog as the frontrunner. Now, for those who may be unaware, 
Hedgehogs are not exactly the speediest animals out there. And in fact, in real life, they can only reach speeds of around four miles per hour, effectively a fast walk for an adult-sized human. But as with many things game-related, sometimes the best design for something deviates just a bit from the real world. Anyway, Oshima believed his concept had merit, but he wanted to get some real-world feedback. So, while on vacation in New York City, he went to Central Park armed with several different character designs, asking passers-by what design they liked the most. Oshima's hedgehog design won by a landslide. So Oshima was definitely onto something. He took his design back to Sega and proposed his hedgehog character as the potential new mascot for the company. Several design evolutions followed, including softening some of the character's features to appeal to a broader market, but for the most part, Oshima's design was a home run. His spiky, blue-haired character with red shoes and a can-do attitude would become Sonic the Hedgehog. With the character decided upon, work then turned to how to create a game around Sonic, and here Yuji Naka took Oshima's design and implemented it into his prototype game. In relatively short order, he had a functioning Sonic prototype running along curves, walls, and loops, and things were looking pretty good, at least as far as this early stage of development was concerned. The only thing is, a successful prototype doesn't necessarily make a successful game, and this is where we need to start focusing on some of the other aspects of the game design process. To start, let's discuss controls, which for platforming titles in particular, can often make or break the experience for players. Naka, like we mentioned, had been a fan of Shigeru Miyamoto's Mario titles, and in particular, he enjoyed the simplicity of the titles, in that they could pretty much be picked up and played by anyone, despite having to deal with complex environments and situations. Miyamoto's design philosophy tended to focus on playability, and making his game experiences enjoyable by everyone. Rather than create a ton of complex control schemes, Miyamoto distilled player control into a couple of buttons and directional movement. Naka, for his part, conceptualized a very similar design for Sonic the Hedgehog, with his goal being that the game should be playable using just a directional pad for moving and a single button to be used for jumping. This simplicity in control would be a direct contrast to the complexity of the environments that he was envisioning for the game. Like we had talked about, he was trying to implement loops, curves, corkscrews, and various other non-standard geometry into the game. The act of combining those complex elements with a simple control scheme would prove to be a challenge, especially because neither Naka nor Ushima had much experience in designing levels for games. So, Sega assigned a new member to the team, Hirokazu Yasuhara, who would serve as the game's overall designer to include level design. Between Yasuhara and Naka, they devised a way to create levels that were incredibly more detailed than nearly any other platforming title of the time, with multiple paths through each level, a number of curved surfaces, speed boosts, spikes, and other obstacles, and a number of different enemies. In fact, there was such a focus on level design and playability that the very first level in the game, Green Hill Zone, would take over eight months to go from concept to implementation, having been scrapped and recreated a number of times. Yasuhara believed that, as the first level in the title, it had to do several things really well. For one, it had to show Sega's technical prowess, so it had to be effectively a showcase for the system, something where anyone could sit down and say, okay, this is what Sega's all about. Another focus was trying to make the level have broad appeal, with the goal of ensuring players around the world, whether Japanese, American, European, or elsewhere, would enjoy the experience. And finally, there were just some pretty serious technical issues that the team needed to work through to actually make the level a reality. We've been talking a bit about level geometry and curves, and we spoke briefly about collision detection. Let's turn our attention now to continue talking about Sonic's speed. Sonic the Hedgehog, like we mentioned, was always designed to be a fast game, and in fact, for Naka and the team, their goal was to create the fastest platform title ever made. So, Naka coded his engine with that in mind. The only thing is, that speed came with its own challenges. Trying to maintain collision detection algorithms accurately while moving at such a breakneck pace was difficult for Sega's hardware to keep up with. And funnily, what ended up happening was, rather than Sonic running along a curve or speeding upside down into a loop, he would simply end up breaking through the loop, literally blasting through the side of the level. This was obviously a bit of an issue. Furthermore, the speed in the game was so fast that at times levels would appear to be moving backwards, 
which I suppose is an early video game adaptation of Einstein's theory of relativity? Maybe? Well, in any event, finally, beyond not being able to keep up with collision detection calculations due to the game's speed, there were a number of other game elements, like enemies and other sprites, that simply couldn't be displayed effectively while maintaining that same sense of speed. Here, Naka proved himself to be a talented developer, as he went back into his engine and developed other routines that would effectively smooth out and address all of these issues. But when he and the team showed the game to other members of Sega's staff, a number of them thought that the game was simply too fast to be playable, despite the fact that all of those prior challenges had already been addressed. So, Naka ended up slowing down the speed just a bit, though according to Sega, Sonic was still considered, at least for the time, to be the fastest action platform game in the world, with Naka himself claiming that Sonic has the fastest ever character speed in a video game. With the engine and character design coming together, attention shifted to music, which would be composed by a Japanese musician named Masato Nakamura. Now, interestingly, Nakamura was not a video game composer, and we have talked at least a few times before about individuals who have created an entire career of composing video game music. Nakamura, prior to being selected to compose the music for Sonic the Hedgehog, had never composed a video game score in his life. Instead, he had been part of a J-pop band called Dreams Come True, who themselves had some success in the music industry. Nakamura was both the band's bassist and composer, so the thought was he could take his music industry experience and convert that expertise into an awesome video game soundtrack. The only issue was, composing for a video game in the early 90s was not nearly the same process as composing music for a real band. Think about it like this. If you want to sit down to compose a piece of music today, you are literally limited only by your imagination or, if you're planning a live performance, the number of bandmates or orchestra members at your disposal. Composing for the Sega Genesis? You'd be limited to only playing four sounds concurrently, which was a significant limitation in comparison to what a traditional composer might be used to. At first, Nakamura thought that it would be impossible to create music under such restrictions. But, at the same time, he was intrigued by the team's focus, which beyond creating a standout flagship title, was, in no uncertain terms, to dethrone Mario as the king of platform gaming. Nakamura wanted to be a part of that, so he took the time to compose the game's soundtrack, with the development team eventually digitizing that work using an Atari ST computer. Eventually, the game would be refined enough to be ready for a public unveiling, and here, Sega of America's Tom Kalinske was just a little bit nervous— he thought that Sega had a winning title on their hands, but would the public agree? So, he arranged for his marketing team to conduct a series of playtests across the United States, and his intention here was clear. He had gamers play a few rounds of Super Mario, and then he had them try out Sonic the Hedgehog, and he asked them point blank, which one was better? The end result? Nearly 80% preferred Sonic. The game would continue to be refined until it made a more formal debut at the 1991 Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, and it would release to the public shortly thereafter on June 23, 1991. The response from both critics and players was overwhelmingly positive, with many praising the game's graphics, music, gameplay, and above all else, sense of speed. It would go on to become one of the best-selling games of the year, on its way to selling over 2 million copies by the end of the year. Its success was so great that, just several months after release, it would replace Altered Beast as the pack-in title for the Sega Genesis, which served to help sell an additional 15 million consoles over the course of its lifetime. Sonic the Hedgehog would be named Game of the Year by many publications of the time, and even retrospective analysis has kept Sonic on many gamers' best games of all time lists. Sonic the Hedgehog would be ported to various other Sega systems, including their 8-bit consoles of the time, the portable Game Gear, as well as the Sega Master System. Those ports are interesting because they were completed by a company called Ancient, which was founded by composer and Streets of Rage 2 creator Yuzo Koshiro. Those ports, by the way, were well-received, and really did a noble job of distilling an advanced 16-bit experience into an 8-bit package. Beyond Sonic's own personal success it would serve as a landmark release for Sega, eventually helping the company capture 65% of the home video game console market by January of 1992, which represented the first time since 1985 that Nintendo hadn't been the video game market leader. 
Sega had achieved their goal. They were now the top video game console on the market. As many are likely aware, that victory would last for only a short time before Sega's position would falter, with the one-two punch of Nintendo striking back, coupled with Sony's PlayStation release serving to diminish Sega's market share within a couple of years. Sega, for its part, also had a couple of missteps along the way, with perhaps its biggest mistake being the release of its 32X Genesis and Sega CD add-on peripheral, which itself was released so close to Sega's true next-generation console, the Sega Saturn, that many gamers were confused as to what to buy when. That, unfortunately, was the beginning of the end for Sega as a console manufacturer. While they would release the Dreamcast several years later, and I personally love my Dreamcast and its games, it was a situation of too little, too late for Sega. Despite their Sonic-driven success, Sega would eventually be ousted from the console market entirely, and today they are content to simply make games rather than continue playing in the hardware space. That being said, Sonic was a resounding success for Sega, and it would become an extremely successful franchise in the years that followed, with multiple sequels and spin-offs across a variety of genres, as well as numerous tangential media efforts, like animated cartoons, books, toys, and most recently, the start of a successful movie franchise that helped, at least in part, pave the way for the current resurgence of quality video game-to-movie releases. While Sega doesn't exist in the same capacity as it once did, and Sonic's primary developer, Yuji Naka, has been in the news for insider trading more than game development recently, Sonic the Hedgehog's legacy remains secure. Sonic has transcended his gaming roots to become a true media franchise and has remained a relevant figure in popular culture even today. Sega's blue-haired mascot took the gaming world by storm when it was released in 1991, and it almost single-handedly made the console wars of the 90s much more interesting, with Sega doing the unthinkable, dethroning Nintendo as the dominant console maker of the time. That success, though short-lived, is a testament to the creativity and genius of Sonic's development team, which would literally go on to be called Sonic Team, and Sega's tenacity in really taking the fight to the rest of the industry. Sega may not have the spotlight any longer, but Sonic's first entry into the world is definitely a shining moment for Sega as a company, and as such, deserves to be remembered as one of the most important and influential game releases of all time. We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Sonic the Hedgehog today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So let's go over a general overview of the game. And I want to start by saying, this is pretty much a traditional platforming game experience. If we left it like that though, you might think there's nothing all that special about the game. But the fact is, there is a lot that Sonic does differently than other platformers, especially at the time it was released, that served to make it a unique experience. So, let's talk about Sonic. The game is split up into six different zones, each of which have three acts. And each act is effectively a level in a traditional game. You can think of zones as themes, so to speak, and acts as levels. Meaning, within any given zone, the corresponding acts will all have a similar style, enemies, design, and all that good stuff. For Sonic, that means that the game consists of 18 total levels plus a final boss fight. For each zone, the third act concludes with a boss fight against the evil Dr. Robotnik. And each time you fight him, his weaponry, mechanics, and movement changes, which keeps the fights from feeling like copies of each other. It adds a bit of diversity to the overall experience. Now, a core mechanic of the game is the concept of collecting rings. And throughout every single level, there are a ton of rings scattered around that you can collect. Rings actually serve a few different purposes. 
If you collect 100 of them during a level, you'll get an extra life, which is reminiscent of Mario Games' long-standing mechanic of collecting 100 coins to gain an extra life. The thing is, rings also act as a shield of sorts, but for that shield, it doesn't really matter how many you collect. So let me explain. Typically, when you're controlling Sonic, if you hit an enemy inadvertently without spinning or jumping into it, which is the way you attack enemies in the game, you will take damage. There's no life bar or anything like that in the game. Basically, the way it works is if you hit an enemy without attacking it, or if you hit a spike trap or any other hazardous obstacle, you'll simply die. Unless you're holding onto one or more rings. If you do have any rings in your possession, then when you get hit, you simply lose your rings, which scatter all across the screen. If you get hit a second time, then of course you die, but you do have a brief opportunity to recollect some of those dropped rings, which would once again give you your shield back. I've got to say, it's an interesting mechanic in a platformer, because you can effectively maintain your life, or you can maintain your playthrough with just a single ring in your inventory that you keep picking up again and again every time you get hit. So I thought it was really interesting the way it was designed. Oh, by the way, rings also serve one other purpose. If you can complete the act you're on with at least 50 rings still in your inventory, you'll unlock a giant ring at the end of the level, which if you jump into it, will warp you to one of several special zones. In those special zones is where you find and acquire the coveted Chaos Emeralds, which ultimately are the gems the big bad boss of the game, Dr. Robotnik, are after. These special zones are rotating pinball-like levels where you have to try to maneuver around the environment, changing the rotational direction of the level as you bump into various objects, until you hopefully reach the center, break a bunch of barriers in a moment similar to classic titles like Arkanoid and Breakout, and claim the Chaos Emerald for yourself. The other important feature of special zones is that they are the only way you can acquire any continues. By default, the game gives you three lives to use throughout the game, with no continues at all. You can collect more lives by acquiring 100 rings in any stage, and you can collect continues by collecting 50 rings in any special zone, which can sometimes be a bit more challenging than what it may appear. And by the way, those continues, unless you're really good at the game, they are almost a necessity to be able to beat the game. And there's no guarantee you'll be able to get to the end of any given stage with the prerequisite 50 rings to even be able to enter the special zone. So, whenever you do get a chance to grab a continue or two, I would definitely take it. Anyway, while Chaos Emeralds are the main plot device that actually causes Dr. Robotnik to perform his evil deeds, actually collecting those emeralds does very little to change how the game plays out. If you do manage to collect all six, and you beat the game, that will unlock the game's best ending. If you don't collect all six emeralds, it's not like you can't beat the game, it's just that the ending you get isn't quite as long or fulfilling. So we've talked about the general structure of the game, but what we haven't talked about, and what was one of Sonic's key selling features, is the speed. Sonic the Hedgehog is a much faster platforming experience than many, if not all, other platform action games, and the game is designed to allow you to progress through every single stage with a degree of speed that borders on unplayable, but in a good way. That might sound bad, but I actually mean it as a compliment. And what I mean here is that sometimes you're moving through levels so quickly that you literally have no time to react to an obstacle or enemy in front of you. This breakneck gameplay is absurdly fun, and even when you ram right into a trap and lose a bunch of your rings, it barely matters because you still have a smile on your face, at least most of the time. Now, just a quick word here about that speed and reaction times. I have seen some incredibly talented gamers who speedrun Sonic, and they can move through each level and time jumps, avoid obstacles, and otherwise obliterate the game. Watching those people play the game is awe-inspiring, and it makes you think, oh, I could do that. So you sit down to play, begin running through the level, and then you realize, oh, I can't do that. See, the sense of speed in the game is awesome, but it's also sometimes a detriment to actually beating the game, if that is your end goal. If you're actually trying to get to the final boss... I found it better to actually treat Sonic like a more traditional platformer, taking each level with a bit more caution as opposed to running through each stage without a care in the world. That 
actually helped me maintain my ring count, which let me get some extra lives as well as enter special zones for the chance at scoring to continue, which for me was essential in actually beating the title. The cool thing here, though, is that even moving through the levels more traditionally is a ton of fun. And there are still opportunities to loop, spin, corkscrew, and race your way through various parts of each stage, even if you're like me and take a decidedly more cautious approach to platforming. Regardless of how you play the game, the fact is that each stage is pretty darn huge, and the environments are diverse, spanning locations such as rolling hills, underwater caves, and factories. For each of those stages, regardless of the environment, there are numerous paths to follow that eventually lead to the end of the stage. I absolutely loved this degree of diversity, and it made it so that you could pretty much make the experience your own. If you were really good at bouncing on enemies, feel free to bounce across the sky, avoiding a ton of obstacles on the ground. If you weren't that great at bouncing, then simply work your way along the ground, avoiding obstacles along the way. If you really liked speed, hit one of the speed-up boosts and rocket through the level. You'll eventually get where you want to be along any number of branching and intersecting pathways. As you progress through each stage, beyond collecting rings and defeating enemies, you do sometimes also come upon some power-ups, which include things like speed boosts, extra lives, invincibility sparkles, and extra rings. I don't know that any of the power-ups are particularly game-changing, but they are certainly useful when you find them. So the bottom line from an overall perspective for Sonic, the game is extremely diverse and its design caters to multiple playstyles. and beyond all, it is simply fun. So before we start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, like graphics and sound, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I really enjoy looking at how different companies marketed their titles around this time, especially because in the early 90s, it's not like we had the internet and YouTube to look up video reviews or gameplay videos of various titles. Sometimes we may not have even had magazines as readily available to look up some of the reviews or look at what titles might look like. So a lot of times when we made a buying decision, that decision was made in the store, and it was made almost exclusively by what the box looked like and what was written on the back of the box. So, for Sonic the Hedgehog for the Sega Genesis, the back of the box says, It's Super Sonic. Super Speed. Bust the video game speed barrier wide open with Sonic the Hedgehog. Blaze by in a blur using the supersonic spin attack. Loop the loop by defying gravity. Plummet down tunnels, then dash to safety with Sonic's power sneakers, all at a frenzied pace. Super graphics! Help Sonic escape bubbling molten lava, swim through turbulent waterfalls, scale glistening green mountains, and soar past shimmering city lights. There's even a 360-degree rotating maze. You've never seen anything like it. Super attitude! Sonic has an attitude that just won't quit. He's flip and funny, yet tough as nails as he fights to free his friends from evil. So just wait. Sonic may be the world's next superhero. And then, of course, there are some images on the back of the box as well from the game. So I've got to say, I thought they did a pretty good job marketing the title. The graphics on the back of the box or the images on the back of the box look really good from the game. It makes it look like something that I would want to play. And in fact, I did play it. And it also touts all of the different qualities that make Sonic Sonic, like the speed and the different types of geometries that are in the levels like loops and all of that good stuff. So I think they did a pretty good job marketing the game with the back of the box. Anyway, let's move in to start talking about some of the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. Bottom line here, I loved the graphics. Everything here was well-designed, extremely colorful, and simply evoked a sense of edgy wonder and joy. Enemy designs were unique and varied, and Sonic himself looked great. Every stage and environment that you encounter look awesome, with each zone's theme being distinct. There are tons of different graphical effects at play here too, some of which are extremely impressive. I especially appreciated the fact that despite the game's speed, the graphics and frame rate were pretty stable, mostly. 
There were occasions where I was carrying a ton of rings and accidentally hit an enemy with the resulting ring explosion causing some stutter and a frame rate dip. But I can honestly forgive those situations because, for one, there were simply a ton of sprites on the screen, so much so that I'm surprised the Genesis didn't simply melt. And further, the rest of the visual presentation is just so darn good that the occasional frame rate hit can't detract from the experience. It was simply a wonderful game to look at. Moving on to the sound and music, the music here was so, so good, with numerous tunes being both memorable and hummable. I honestly don't think there was a bad track in the game, and I've got to commend composer Misato Nakamura on creating a soundtrack that both meshes incredibly well with the action on the screen, as well as standing alone as a set of tracks that I would listen to even when I'm not playing the game. It's honestly that good. Sound effects were similarly high quality, with every enemy, collision, ring pickup, power-up, and whatever else adding to the overall auditory environment in such a way that despite it being a cacophony of conflicting sounds, somehow come together into some sort of orchestra of awesomeness. I have literally no complaints about the music or sound in the game. It all sounds great. Moving on to the narrative and story... You play as Sonic the Hedgehog, an anthropomorphic animal on a quest to save the world's animals from the clutches of Dr. Robotnik. The evil doctor has captured and imprisoned the world's animals as part of his attempt to find the six Chaos Emeralds that had been lost. If Dr. Robotnik can find the Chaos Emeralds, he would gain unstoppable power. So, Sonic sets off to both save his animal friends and find the lost Chaos Emeralds before Robotnik can steal them for his own fiendish gains. You know what? The story here, it works. I know that I've said plenty of times before, and I will keep saying it. Platforming titles do not need a deep story to be successful. And certainly, Sonic's story is not deep. But I always appreciate when there's some purpose given for why you're exploring a world and defeating its evildoers. It's just a nice extra touch that makes an otherwise great game even better, and I have no issue at all with Sonic's story. It's straightforward, it's simple, but honestly, it works. Moving on to the playability and controls, we have talked a bit about the overall playability and controls just a few minutes ago, but just to recap, the controls in this title are pretty much the simplest kind of controls you can implement for a platforming title. You move around with your directional pad and you have a single button dedicated to jumping, and that's pretty much it. Attacking enemies can be accomplished by jumping at them or rolling toward them and hitting them, but otherwise, your main goal is to avoid obstacles and traps while collecting as many power-ups and rings as is humanly possible. As a platformer, the quality of the experience will live and die by its controls, and for Sonic, the good news is that the game controls great. I always felt in control of my character, and I don't recall a single instance where I executed a maneuver, failed, and thought, oh, that was the game's fault. Every action I took, every success, and every failure was due to my own skill, or lack of skill, and I appreciated the fact that the controls were so tight. Sonic was simply a joy to play. Now, I do have some other comments, but honestly... These aren't even really critiques, just simply observations. The game can be challenging, especially as you get further into the game. Though from my perspective, this is a perfect example of difficulty done right. We've talked about games before that are difficult, but whose difficulty is driven by random chance or some sort of arbitrary design decision. With Sonic, the difficulty later in the game feels intentional and intentionally designed to encourage you to become more proficient as a player. If you practice, there is no reason why you couldn't beat this game without much issue. For those of us who may be playing more casually, you can absolutely still beat the game, though from my perspective, continues are an absolute necessity. I think the time that I finally beat the last boss, I had used up around three continues and was down to my last life, which made the experience incredibly stressful, but also ultimately super rewarding. The game's controls are a bit simpler than what future Sonic games would employ, and the biggest gap for me, as someone who played a ton of Sonic 2 as a kid and not as much Sonic 1, 
was the fact that there was no way to roll yourself into a ball and launch yourself forward. In Sonic 2, you can basically get into a charged ball from a stationary position, which from what I could tell was not possible in Sonic 1. Not a big deal, but something that I had to get used to. If I did have one critique, though, it would be that the sheer speed of some of the sections made it so that you really didn't have much of a choice as to what the game was going to do. And if you try to play the game in super turbo always run fast mode, I would imagine you might have some difficulties. Like I had mentioned earlier, I played many parts of the games as a traditional platforming experience, taking a bit more caution than I ever did when I was younger. The fact that I never beat the game back then, and I was able to beat it recently, suggests to me that a middle ground of cautious platforming coupled with some areas where you use all of the speed available to you is probably the best way to tackle the game, at least until you get good enough to where you can simply breeze through the level. I must stress though, the game is a blast to play regardless of how you play it. This is one well-designed platformer. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? I honestly have next to nothing to really complain about. The game felt amazing, even over 30 years after its release. This is an example of one of those titles that, despite being designed many years ago, still feels modern to play and control. It might not have some of the creature comforts we expect today, like unlimited continues or autosaves after each level, but from a pure gameplay graphics and sound perspective, Sonic the Hedgehog knocks it out of the park. So overall, what is our verdict? The fact is, Sonic the Hedgehog is simply an amazing game that everyone should play at some point in their lives. I admit, I did not expect to have as much fun as I ended up having. I knew Sonic 1 was good, because I had played it when I was younger, albeit not really extensively. But sitting down to play it in earnest for this episode, and eventually beat it, gave me a brand new perspective on the title. It is not hard to understand why Sonic was a large contributor to Sega overtaking Nintendo in the console market. Sonic the Hedgehog is a remarkably well-designed platformer that carved its own niche in the gaming world. Rather than simply mimic titles like Super Mario, it served to evolve the action platform genre by injecting it with a sense of attitude, scope, and above all, speed. Sonic the Hedgehog is a quintessential platforming experience with stellar gameplay, amazing graphics, and a memorable soundtrack. And for those reasons, Sonic is absolutely deserving of joining our pantheon of classic gaming. In fact, I would go so far as to say that Sonic belongs on the Mount Rushmore of platforming titles. It is that good, and I highly encourage everyone to play the title. This is one of those experiences that you simply cannot miss. was our episode on Sonic the Hedgehog. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. A ton of fun out there. I highly encourage you all to join. And once again, we also do have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if you want to get a couple of additional podcast episodes every single month, some exclusive blog posts, exclusive Discord channels and roles, make sure you sign up over there. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Metal Gear Solid. So please feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast engines, and it would be great if you wouldn't mind to leave me a review. 
This is not about bolstering star counts or harvesting a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what this is really all about is gathering the feedback necessary to continue to make this the best possible podcast it can be. I want to make sure that I continue to deliver the content that you all want to listen to and that continues to attract new listeners. We are getting new listeners literally every day, which is awesome. I want to continue to grow the community, and the only way to do that is to make sure that I am hitting the mark with the content that you all want to listen to and making this the best possible podcast it can be. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Metal Gear Solid. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>